Hi, it's Bill Smith from the Classic Camera Revival. Yes, we've got Myron back from Silver Green Classics. And this episode, we're talking all things Leica SLR. Welcome to the Classic Camera Revival, coming to you from the greater Toronto Hamilton region of Ontario, Canada. If you don't have gear acquisition syndrome now, you most likely will by the end of the episode. And we're back and we got we got Marwin, we got James and of course me and we're talking all things about the Leica SLR system. And again, Leica, if you tuned in last uh, episode, we talked all things M-mount rangefinder. Reference has been made that they were dragged kicking and screaming into the SLR market. And that was, you can thank Nikon. And, uh, Olympus. Uh, well, no, Olympus was not in the SLR system. In the oh, no? Case. Nope. They didn't well, the get first the, ones were the first ones Pentax. were Minolta. Oh, Pentax! I'm sorry, Minolta, Pentax, Pentax, and Nikon. Yeah, yeah, and the Nikon F was the big. Uh, even though like Minolta and Pentax were probably early to the market with this, the SLR system, Nikon was that sort of like great leap forward that you know wealthy enthusiasts and working professional photographers would look at and going, "Yes, I want one of those because it's modular. It had a full lens system." And it was built like a truck. Meanwhile, over in uh, Wetzler, lights, the lights people were sitting there going, oh, crap, we need something. We need something bad. And at first, they were sort of in a wee bit of denial. But then, you know, around 1964, they came out with the Leica Flex. And again, it was an over-engineered hunk of German brass, chrome plating. And they came with what... It, and this is where I'm going to almost hand over to Marwin and some regards because they the the mount is roughly the like Nikon the the mount is roughly the same all the way through. However, they got variations of which you have to be very mindful of. Or well, yeah, well, tears the, and yeah, regret. The, yeah, <laughs> well, that, that that's called the cam system, which is controlling the um, which which gives the um, uh, f-stop reading to the metering system in the camera, mm -hmm. but. What was very important about the, the Leica Flex when it came out, the first model, was the, the mirror system, which was really outstanding. Um, it had, a, if, you, if, you, if you fire a, uh, a Leica Flex, the vibrations are so extremely low. Mm. There's nothing on the market, which is till today, if you just, if you just, if you just take uh, Leica Flexes or R Leicas uh, and you fire them, um, there was a special mechanism in lifting the um, the mirror, not like just flipping it up. It was just flipping up, and then after a certain point, it was lifted up, mm. so that you reduced the vibrations to an extreme point. The only disadvantage of, or one of the disadvantages of the Leica Flex of the first Leica Flex was the external light meter. So they had a CDS sensor in, in on top of the um, of the camera, which the Japanese did, I think Minolta did that with the SR7 in a similar way, but years before in the 50s. So they didn't have a real uh, state-of-the-art camera because of the metering system at the time. Well, and again, to Minolta's defense, they had something similar with their photomic for the first few years of the 1960s and then switched to, I think, the photomic, I want to say the photomic T around 1965. 
I should know this because I am a Nikon fanboy at heart, but yeah, that sounds about right. So the Lycoflex was made from roughly 1964 till about 1968 and was replaced by the Lycoflex SL, which gave you TTL metering. Yeah. Uh, and it's actually a solid, it's a solid camera. Absolutely. It's, it's, it's really, uh, first of all, when you hold it, it's kind of massive. It just, just, uh, it's kind of a very, very, very good and well-built design. And although it is so big, um, it is kind of nice to use. Um, then what is, what it also has the, the, the TTL metering is extremely centered. So that means mm. you have in fact nearly a spot metering. Mm. And uh, but also this is based on a CDS cell, so you need mercury cell batteries, which are not produced anymore, or you have to get them from some Russian sources or whatever. Um, yeah. So if you, if you buy one, make sure it has 1.35 volts, um, uh, then you should get the hearing aid batteries. Um, make sure that you get hearing aid batteries, otherwise you get not really the right reading. Oh, another option is getting the MR9 battery adapter from japan which uses that works uh, too yeah I, I love those i have a pile of them for a variety of older cameras and again i just use energizer 357 batteries and i'm good to the good to go now like a flex sl some were made for the u.s navy they only came in black enamel and black chrome and uh there's even i think a motor drive a variant yeah there was the it was called mott well the motor drive is heavy and big I mean, it's kind of, it is as high as the camera. It's just kind of a big, big block you just put below it. And mm. the grip is also not on, normally if you have a motor drive, you have that grip on the level mm. of the camera. That grip is below the camera and um, also quite massive. It is the, the um, SL MOT, M-O-T. Mm. Okay, and of course, the SL was made from uh, basically 68 to 1974, and near the end, they came out with the SL2, which is just some minor tweaks to the design. Yeah, uh, but also important, also important just um, to see at the time, SLRs had the maximum shutter speed was a thousand of a second. Mm -hmm. The SL has already two thousands of a second. So mm -hmm. um, also the, that is, is, is a very, very nice thing. And there was uh, there were some kind of differences between the SL and the SL2, um, especially you have an illuminated viewfinder, so you could read um, the needle um, also in the darkness mm. um, easily. And uh, what also was done was that the that the um, the CDS cell is much more sensitive for light in the SL2, so uh, it is definitely the better camera. Oh, of course. And again, I've had some experience shooting with the SL and SL2s. My brother owned a pair and extremely solid. And it's my one regret not buying one off him when he was uh, getting rid of his Leica uh, SLR systems when he was thinning the herd back 10 years ago when he was moving houses. So part of the problem with the Leica Flexes was there were in the 1970s there was a great leap forward in camera technology and you can you've got the pro body heavyweights which is canon and nikon and they, again their their systems are you know robust heavyweight systems but olympus came along and popped uh the om1 and then a few short years later the om2 onto the table and that literally shook things up 
to the core with the camera set because everyone's sitting going, my God, it's so compact, it's so light, you can throw it in a briefcase almost and uh, not worry about it. Whereas the, uh, the Leica Flex, you almost need a rolling duffel bag for a camera bag <laughs> if, you're rolling, if, you're, if you're going with a couple different lenses. Yeah, but for the professionals, I think, um, you know, they are most of the time very conservative. Um, and uh, uh, I mean, uh, I don't think that it was a mistake to have a big camera like the SL. The, the bigger problem was really the price. It was, was very, very um, cost, cost uh, intensive in terms of manufacturing. Mm. Um, it was definitely the most expensive camera SLR on the market. So, and even that didn't cover the costs. They had to subsidize the camera manufacturing via the lenses. So they just, mm. they just sold, they just had to put money on the lenses in order to subsidize the camera production. So this is where we get to talk about how life got really interesting for Leica. Back in the early 70s, I believe at a Photokina or another big camera fair, the lights people and the Minolta people got to talking. And they set up a sort of joint venture, I guess, or I think the one. It was a 20 years cooperation or more than 20 year cooperation came out of that. Yes. And in some weird ways, if you look through a Minolta SRT body and you look through an SL mm -hmm. and you say, my God, the, the, match, the needle metering is very similar looking. Yes. It's not like one copied the other, but, but it's like. They, they want, you know, it's like, like I probably looked at the design and going, I think this works. We'll run with yeah. it. And what happened was the Leica flexes were, how can I say, a, a, a product money pit for Leica and they were bleeding quickly. And, and as we alluded in the previous episode, the M4 II saved the, the company's bacon in the later 70s. Leica entered an agreement with Minolta and the Copal company to develop a new shutter. and they used Minolta's, uh, the guts of uh, a couple of Minolta's higher end lines to come up with the new R series, starting with the yeah, R3. Yeah. Right well, under especially Minolta at the time had also some interesting changes. Um, they started, their, their, their target was in the 1970s because they, they came, the idea was very, very early to compete with the Nikon F with the SR series, but yeah. the Nikon F was too early. So they just, did not do a motor drive for the SR. And the next step was the XM after the success of the SRT in the 1960s. Mm. And when the XM, or in the United States, it's the X1 or XK, I think XK is XK. in Japan. Yeah, in and um, they, they just released in the early 70s a camera that was already in the computer age. It had already a microprocessor. It had a titanium uh, shutter, uh, two thousandths of a second. Contrast light compensation was the first, first or one of the early versions of a um, of a um, uh, matrix metering. Mm -hmm. So they were really, I would say, it was a what was a Nikon F, uh, ten years before the Nikon F really came on the market. Mm -hmm. um, and with all these electronic gadgets, uh, that was interesting uh, to combine that with Leica. Yeah. Because Leica had no experience in electronics. Until today, you can notice that um, the level of electronic manufacturing here in Germany was not on the level like in Japan. If you buy an early SL 
or an SL2, and you buy, for example, a Minolta or a Nikon with a CDS sensor from the 1960s, the Nikons and the Minoltas are still working. The German mm -hmm. CDS sensor is dead. Um, it just definitely shows that they really had not really good experience in manufacturing and, and designing electronic components at mm. the time. So Leica and Minolta got together and they sort of came with a common platform. And in Minolta world, it is known as the XE7, which yeah. was below the, the, the pro body, which never really sold all that much. And, and it was slated above the SRTs. And uh, Leica turned around, they took the chassis, the shutter assembly, and probably the basic electronics and put a new housing on it. And of course, the new R mount which is sort of basically the same mount as the Leica Flex SL and SL2, and gave you the R3. And it was introduced in 1976. And the Photokina, yeah. That it was Photokina. also the first camera that was shown with an autofocus, by the way, in the mid-70s. Yeah, and it was probably, from what I've read, it's sort of like, uh, it, I'm not sure if it saved Leica's bacon, but it showed, it showed they were uh, onto something that was just, they're trying to keep up. <laughs> Well, uh, well, I think the, the R3 is definitely the saver for Leica uh, because it sold very well afterwards. Um, what you also have to mention is that um, the, um, the Minolta, the, uh, the Minolta XE um, never came with the motor drive. No. Um, and it also had no spot metering. Now, the R3 had spot metering and had um, a motor drive connection or winder connection. Oh, wow. Uh, that and on top of that, the entire body is not um, black painted. It was it had black chrome, uh, which is a very special Leica thing. Um, and uh, uh, so even today, if you just get heavily used R3s, they don't have any corners that where you can see the brass. No. Yeah, and R3s, it was, uh, I've handled them and it felt like really like it's really strange because you know, say, like, wow, this feels a lot like my XE7. And, yeah. and again, like uh, sort of with uh, introducing the three cam lens system, it came up with a whole boatload of lens options from, you know, super wide to uh, the super long tellies that people want. Now, the big leap forward. It was just a few short years later when the R4 was launched in 1980. And that was based on the Minolta XD, uh, XD7, XD7 in, yes. in Europe, the XD11 in US and the XD mm -hmm. in Japan. And it also came available with the uh, Leica R4 motor drive electronic 1980. Mm -hmm. And even I think a Chrome version 1982. Yeah. Well, but again, what is also important to say is that it is not a rebranded Minolta. That's no. what some people really think. That that's the same for the R3 and the R4. There are parts they used together, which was the film advance mechanism. But when we're talking about the mirror. Uh, for example, it's a total different thing. The mechanics are definitely not even close. The only thing what the cameras shared were the shutters. Yeah. Because that was the that was revolutionary at the time, and not another manufacturer had a shutter of this type. So, yeah. So the R4 was uh, introduced in 1980, and I uh, was superseded by the I believe I believe the R5. 
Or was yes, that... there was the R5, but in between there was the R4S and the R4S Mod 2. What Leica from at that point always did was they had their top-notch model, which was the uh, R4. And the R4 was the first Leica that had also a program mode. Mm. It had shutter priority and aperture priority plus a program mode. And... Um, in order to get also, uh, yeah, to have a, for those who had a smaller budget, they had a the R4S uh, mm -hmm. that lacked the uh, the program mode. Yeah, and how many people actually use that? <laughs> Sorry, I'm well, being, I'm being for professional. <laughs> P for professional, exactly. Yeah, yeah, it's like the little the little green square <laughs> before there's a little green square. So. These were all electronic bodies, and Leica came along and introduced the R6, which I believe was uh, introduced in the late 1980s as a mechanical. Yeah, it was the at the end of the 1980s. There was one because the production of Minolta. That has to be said that um, when Leica started the cooperation between Minolta and uh, Leica, it the manufacturing moved to Portugal. Mm -hmm. So the R3, there were only a few of them were manufactured in Germany. And then the entire R3 production started in Portugal and the R4 and the R5 mm. were manufactured in Portugal as well until the end of the 80s. Mm. The R5 is an exception because the R5 was partly manufactured in Portugal and then from the beginning of the 90s manufactured in Wetzlar. Okay. So you can see that, um, you can see that even on the camera, uh, the R4s and R3s have the red dot Mm -hmm. on the left side and it says lights mm -hmm. and the r5 from that point on manufactured in germany again have the red dot on the right side which says leica again huh, interesting. interesting good to know yeah and of course the r6 is the mechanical version which by then minolta got out of manual focus cameras by and large save for the x700 and long parted, uh, discontinued the XD platform, but Leica was still using it. So I'm assuming parts were still being made for, for Leica. The R6 was unique because unlike the R4, R5, and of course the R7, the R6 was mechanical. Fully, yes. I've never come across one personally in the wild uh i've no experience in shooting with them either i've shot with the r4 oh my god those are a dream of a camera to shoot with yeah and they are by the way not really expensive it is uh, honestly the the cheapest way in to get into the leica system uh, or into a, a very reliable camera system um what is interesting about the r6 is that uh, you can hear the mechanics especially for the lower speeds it makes a kind of humming sound Mm. Um, some people think that's some that's that's uh, some some technical problem, which is not true. It just it has the escapement makes that humming sound. So don't be surprised if you hear that. Yeah, and it, the R the R six was made from 1988, and they had an R 6.2 which was made from 1992 to 1997, and it's just higher shutter speeds uh, to one two thousandth of a second, improved yes. CTL flash mode. And you can meter many flash expo any flash exposure from a shutter speed from one one hundredth down to bulb. And then, of course, that was, I think, 
was uh, and the R7 was basically the electronic version of the R6 and 6.2. Yeah, the R7 is um, the R7 was um, um, was a total redesign, especially in terms of electronics. It is a bit higher. If you mm -hmm. just take it, it even needs the double amount of batteries because the amount of electronics in the R7 is so much higher um, compared to the other ones. There are a lot of improvements, especially the the sealing against moisture mm -hmm. uh, was improved. So in fact, the R7 and the 6.2 are, in my opinion, the cameras to go for if you want to have a really, really good Leica. Yeah, that's kind of like almost where I my mind would be at. Because they're mechanical, they'll probably there's always going to be someone who'll be able to fix them. Whereas in electronics, so, like R, yeah. the R4, R5, R7, and I guess uh, we're going to have to talk a little bit about the R8 and R9. Uh, it, it's well, the, the it's a parts problem. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it, it's like can you find a circuit board for that little baby? And yeah, no, well, there is, there is, there, there are one, especially for those who would like to buy an R system camera, they have to be careful. First of all, the R3 is not a problem at all; can be serviced easily. There are enough spare parts. I just talked to um, some of the um, Leica doesn't doesn't do it anymore themselves. They outsource it to one specialist here in Germany. They have all the tools, all the spare parts. And I asked them and they said, we have more than enough spare parts for all the Leica R3 till the R, there's R enough R7. available. If you buy um, a used R4, especially from the first generation, you have to be careful because um, some Leicas were bought by collectors. They mm. never unpacked it. You just get a new old stock. Um, especially people bought it as kind of their retirement fund, which was a stupid idea. But even I, I have a I have a package that's still sealed. Nobody looked into it. But um, the, if you get those cameras, be careful because maybe the circuits in there are still the malfunctioning ones of the first series. Um, <laughs> because nobody used it and nobody gave it back for warranty. If you have a used one where you can see it, it, it has wears and it, it saw thousands of films, then you're on safe side. It, it's especially till the um, serial number 1.600,000. Everything below R4s, be careful that because it had a British, um, a British microchip from Ferranti, which was malfunctioning. Um, oh and but, but very early they replaced them all and under warranty they replaced all of them so if you have a working r4 then yeah it will work too just be careful about all of those un uh, unpacked ones below 1.600,000 okay so interesting at the other end we go when uh and i guess once the r7 was discontinued that sort of ended like his partnership with Minolta and they came out with their own in-house design with the R8 and later the R9. And it was a big, uh, a big departure in terms of design. And, yeah. uh, and again, I, I have never seen one in person. Uh, it's, it's sort of like uh, a friend was gift, uh, a friend of uh, mine within the analog photography community was gifted one recently. Yeah, it works great, but again, it's sort of like. Well, yeah. Well, the point with the R R eight is that they totally redesigned it. They used a bus system now. Um, it in, in in fact is a twenty first century camera with all the electronics you need. 
and a 21st century camera. But uh, the disadvantage of this, it just make it short, there are no spare parts. With no means, nothing. There is nothing left. The next thing is, even if someone starts to produce it again, there are no tools. And everybody who has a modern car, if you go to your dealer and you replace the thing, um, you have to connect it to a, a computer and just uh, uh, reprogram the thing. You have to make firmware updates. It is a modern computerized product on a high mm. level, but it's definitely not possible to repair it. It's impossible, just, just to say it that hard. So, so if your R8 breaks, and it will, a lot of photographers, especially those who are using them professionally, they stop taking them on location. Smart. It's just, it's just really a, a dance on a volcano. It's just from one moment to the other, they just die. Yeah, that's the perils of having a modern electronic camera. Either well, designed, yeah. It's planned off. Well, I don't want to say planned obsolescence, but it's to a point. It's like they're not fixable. Well, it's the same so, risk like with a Contax G2. I mean, the thing will, it could just brick on you. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I know there's one place in Japan, I think, that can still service the G2. But uh, but that's, I mean, that's the challenge with uh, with electronics, right? But um well, in fact, in fact, what Leica did on the R8 and an R9 was they were using military-grade electronics. The electronic itself was really made to last for a long, long time. But um, because there was that change in the politics going from analog to digital, you know, at the beginning of the 2000s, um, everybody thought in 10 years there will be no film available. And having such a high quality product to let that run, it would have financially be totally impossible to run it. Um, the real reasons why the spare parts and service and maintenance is not done anymore is, by the way, the base for a lot of rumors. A lot of people, it's kind of a conspiracy theory thing up to, the well, there are parts in it that can't be serviced or whatever. You know, it's, it's very, very difficult. Um, there is not really one explanation that really gives you why it's not possible so and it's sort of like the big what would you get if you're going to get into the leica slr systems and if it was my you know say all of a sudden i magically came into a humongous pile <laughs> of money i would definitely be looking at a leica r6.2 uh yeah. probably a, a, a three cam 50 f2 sumicron uh, definitely a 28 2.8 elmeret Maybe even a 24, because this is the other thing a lot of people don't realize. As part of that Minolta Leica partnership, Minolta and Leica also made lenses together. Yes, they made lenses together, and they were very good, by the way. So, uh, by the way, Minolta was always a very good manufacturer, especially for lenses, because Minolta was one of the only, at the time in the 70s and 60s, they were the only manufacturer for, they had owning a lens manufacturer owning an own glass manufacturing facility That's so they could produce their own glass i i i, I was born close to uh, bad kreuznach which is where schneider had their um their manufacturing plants and i talked with some of the people there uh, schneider lenses and they were always importing at the time glass from minolta so minolta glass was used from zeiss was used from leica it was a top-notch manufacturer for these things. And yeah, especially when it came to zoom lenses, 
Minolta was much more advanced than Leica. Leica had in the past not really um, a huge experience in the 60s. They bought their zoom lenses from Angieux mm-hmm. from France, which was uh, um, a lens manufacturer specialized in cinematography lenses. And yeah, and other lenses came from Minolta, especially the 70, um, 200 and 200 or the 80, 200 four which were also used in the um later autofocus systems which is called as the beer can maybe you heard about that yeah the, uh, oh yes yeah. everybody yeah. yeah i mean if you know minolta you should know about the beer can yeah that, which is a which is a really good lens um at the time it was rated um to be a good match against carl zeiss lenses it also lacked a bit that made in germany thing uh, a lot of people just would say oh yeah okay it's a poor man's leica lens because you it was made in japan but the performance is really good it's not well, outstanding it's not like the uh, like the later apo um, lenses but it is more than enough to make good slides and um, so if you want to be if you are on a budget um, and you just want to start with something Try to get an R5, get a 28 70 millimeter for, let's say, 200 euros, and get a um, get a zoom lens of that type, which is the uh, which the, the 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 Leica version of the beer can, and then you have a good start to get into the system. And whenever you have money, just get one of your dream lens later on. <laughs> there That's you go. That's the smart thing because it's actually the Tele Elmer. It was basically, I believe, the Minolta MD eighty to two hundred f four. Yeah, and it's funny because it, that is a that is a really nice lens. I've I've got that with my Minolta system, and Minolta also made another lens, which is like a seventy five to one fifty. That it was the Minolta MD, and I just sort of wonder why Leica never picked that one up because it had their look stamped all over it. Yeah, you know the 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 interesting thing about the the Leica lenses is that um, uh, Leicas were mainly made for slide photographers. Okay. And when you do a slideshow, um, you don't want to have any kind of changing in the color rendition of your image. So mm. if you, for example, take your 16 millimeter fish eye, and then you shift later to your 200 millimeter tele lens, if these photos come after each other in the slide projection then you don't want to notice the color change. And um, I think Leica was very picky about what kind of lens would they going to use in their range. By the way, also some wide angle lenses, 16 millimeter is also from Minolta. The 24 mm. millimeter was from Minolta. So there are several lenses also in the R Leica prime lens range, which were also manufactured together or designed together with Minolta. And I think a lot of people, and it's like, yeah, don't under, and I and I do think Minolta Roker Glass is probably some of the best out there, period, in 35 millimeter photography. So yeah, don't knock that system. <laughs> Not at all. And, and it's some of the best value uh, for money that you can buy, like that you can get out there because the quality is just, it's really just, they're just fantastic lenses. Yeah. So getting back to Leica, so you're, the R5 along with two zooms is a great entry level point. If you've got more money than you know what to do with, in other words. Uh, so but when you, when you get into the R3s and above, you're looking at uh, three cam lenses, right? Yes, exactly. Yeah. 
You have to use three cam. You can also use the two cam lenses. The only thing what doesn't work is the program mode or um, everything that requires automation. Mm -hmm. uh, but you just can you just can um, stop down and meter. That works. Yeah. Mm -hmm. you have a two point eight hundred eighty millimeter um, a two cam lens, and I regularly lose it use it on my six point two. Uh, it's a wonderful lens. It's a bit heavy. Nothing mm -hmm. to, to, to carry around, better use in a studio or whatever, mm -hmm. but um, an excellent lens, really excellent quality. Um, uh, also, the older Leica lenses from the 1970s, they are, even by today's standard, outstandingly good. Yeah. There are some exceptions, like always, but yeah, if you get a really one, a good one in good shape, don't hesitate. Um, also, the, 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 the two 90 millimeter uh, are. A wonderful portrait lens, just just to get the yeah. 92.8 Almerit. Yeah, I've yes. shot with that. It is a beaut. It renders so gorgeously, regardless if it's black and white or color. And yeah, you, know, you just you're left sort of almost gobsmacked at just how beautiful it is. We just did uh, we did the test for the new Ektachrome when it came mm -hmm. out, um, the latest generation of the Ektachrome, one and a half year ago. Uh, we did it with the 90 millimeter and did a drum scan afterwards. Now, um, the guy in our uh, studio lab uh, who is doing the drum scanning is, he is a quality, uh, I would say, um, a quality idiot already. He's just really so extremely, that's why he only uses large format. And then he was scanning it and scanning it and scanning it. And then he just called me and I said, I'm zooming into this this image deeper and deeper and i can't believe this is 35 millimeter and this <laughs> lens is more than 30 years old wow you know, it's kind of it's really good the 90 millimeters just um, yeah okay so put that into your shopping list for uh <laughs> our glass so if you're into like the more older mechanical like the leica flexes uh would the sl be your best bet or the sl if you can find an SL2, grab that. But the I would I would get the SL2 because I, I had one and and you can use um, uh, single and two cam lenses with them. I I think some of the three cams will do some damage. Yes, that's uh, right. That's right. Yeah. That's, you can't use all lenses on the uh, on the SL2. You have to be careful. Yeah. And, um, and don't don't confuse it. If you're going to Google it, uh, make sure you're going to Google Leica Flex <laughs> SL2. Otherwise, you're going to get quite a shocking price tag surprise if you Google Leica SL2. If you still have doubts, just send an email to Leica Germany and make a ask them. They'll tell you the right thing. Exactly. <laughs> so I, so, wouldn't, I wouldn't, uh, honestly, especially in, in, in forums, that what I noticed is that Leicas do have a bad reputation, um, more or less. I don't know what is the reason. Maybe it was the the jealousy factor in the past because you know in the 70s, 80s, they were, especially 80s, 90s, it was the camera of the rich and beautiful. Yeah. Um, and nobody could afford them because there's some really the most some, expensive cameras. Some envy going on there, I think. Mm. And uh, so there's still a little bit of bitterness. You know, one of the quirky things about the SL2, um, the Leicaflex SL2, is that the mirror is semi-silvered. So you actually can't use a circular polarizer and the meter on there, yes. which I, I found out the hard way. But... Uh, well, uh, also the um, make sure that the that the the metering system is working. 
Yes. Um, that, that's especially for the SLs and the, the, the SL is not a big deal, but the SL2, um, it is a bit rare or difficult to get the spare part. It's available, but you have to search for it. Um, so if you are, you want to rely on the internal light metering, um, which is, by the way, if it works, it, it's a wonderful, it's a wonderful tool. Um, and it's a wonderful camera. It's a good recommendation. It's not so expensive, by the way. So if you not really, no, no, you can get nice cameras there. And so, considering well, the 1974 technology, it's uh, it's really you know. Yeah, uh, it is definitely over engineered. Yeah, uh, I mean, it's kind of you get a lot of camera for the money. Mm -hmm. So one and two cam glass, slightly more reasonable than three cam. Yes. Uh, Cost-wise, yeah, and in yeah. my experience, at least in the Canadian market, uh, probably uh, you're looking at I would say a forty percent premium on three cam versus two cam glass. Okay. So, so like a like a let's say a, a, a single or two cam uh, Sumalux fifty uh, is going to cost you uh, in Canada, and then we're talking R series here, not M. Uh, it's probably going to cost you about. Um, six to seven hundred dollars canadian dollars and then a single cam oh sorry uh the three cam will be about six to seven hundred dollars and the uh uh the two one one cam will probably be about uh, 300 and then you're looking at about four between four and five for a two cam there you go but there's always the possibility especially for let's say students and young people and what i think is interesting about the leica r system is the point that the spare part situation is the positive. Yeah. Um, oh, exactly. It is one of the, that's, that's, that's one of the most important things for students and people with a small budget and love to shoot on film. Um, I think it is a good investment because at the moment, the camera bodies are very, very on the lower end of quality cameras. Um, but on the other hand, I always say that um, the amount, the production run was very, very low. If you just look at the um, six Leica R6.2, there were only 30,000 made. Um, the same with the R5, 30 to 35,000 models were made. The only one that was made in bigger numbers, about 100,000, 120,000 units was the R4. All other Leica R models 30, 35,000. Um, an RE, for example, only eight to 9,000 were done. So, um, yeah, if you compare that to the amount of M Leicas on the market, it is really kind of really a bargain for a, a, a great camera system. Very true. Yeah, I completely agree. And I think, yeah, like even if you want to get into a lower price point, like for a student, like an R three is a uh, body is a is a great choice, and you can even start with a, with a, a single or two cam lens and stop down meter and learn your metering, and then uh, when you get a little bit more money in your pocket, you can uh, upgrade to a three cam lens and you know use the full functionality of the camera. There's lots of parts available for them. They're a dime a dozen uh, these days, so uh, relatively speaking, for like a you know, and in the, the Leica category. The tip is also the Tamron Adapt All system. Absolutely. 2.8 yep. 300 millimeter lens from Tamron, um, which I use on the Leica quite often because Leica never made a 2.8 300. Um, and uh, that is, yeah, you get the lens for 300 euros. 
uh, and you can adapt all the zooms. You get very good wide-angle Tamron uh, lenses. The good thing about the uh, Tamron Adapt All system is it even supports the program function. So that's a that's a good way to start. There you go. There you go. Well, I guess it's time to wrap it up. I, as a member of the Classic Camera Revival editorial team, hold myself no way responsible for any future financial misadventures, <laughs> bankruptcy, spousal arguments, um, all that stuff. You're on your own, and that's okay, because <laughs> we're here to enable you. It's Bill Smith uh, signing off. Until next time, uh, shoot tons of film, fresh film, have that film, you know, fresh film smell. Keep our, keep those keep those coding lines going. Uh, this is James Lee. Get out there, get your Leica Flex on, and uh, go shoot some film. And Marwan. Oh yeah, that's me now. Okay. Are we keeping yeah. you up? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I just just, just I, I was waiting for the signal. <laughs> yeah. Well, shoot film and be happy with it. And uh, well, money is not everything. You know it. Oh, hell yeah. You can't take it with you. And on that note, continue to support our local uh, film retailers. Yeah, yeah, please. Yep. Your local, and maybe your local camera magazine. That's also important. There you go. Yeah, of course. Uh, yes. Uh, we, we, or, you, or you're not so local one if you're in North America. <laughs> well, <laughs> the world is a small village now. It sure is. <laughs> okay. And until next time, have fun, guys. Thanks, guys. Take care. Goodbye.